0: Welcome to Industry Insights, the EFM podcast, which puts a spotlight on highly topical and trend setting industry issues, creating a compass for the forthcoming film year. This year round podcast is produced in cooperation with the Goethe Institute and co founded by Creative Europe Media. This podcast episode has been developed in collaboration with the San Sebastian International Film Festival spotlighting some of the experts they've had in town at their second annual Creative Investors Conference, which is organized in partnership with CAA and also supported by Spanish Screening's XXL project. My name is Wendy Mitchell. I'm a consultant and moderator at the EFM in Berlin. I was also one of the organizers of this conference in San Sebastian. So I wanted to have this opportunity for this podcast to talk a little bit about some of these big investment trends that we've been talking about at the conference a little bit, but just hearing separately from some of the experts how they're seeing the market. Are they feeling optimistic or not? So we've got four experts here today. We're first going to hear from Carol Scotta, who is a producer and distributor at Howe Core in France. And then we also are going to gather Juan Gordon, producer at the leading Spanish company Morena Films. John Sloss from Synetic Media and the law firm Sloss Eckhouse from New York. And London-based Elisa Alvarez, finance expert at Jacaranda Group and IPR.bc. So, we're first going to turn to Carol and hear how she's viewing the market. And you'll notice we're not in a soundproof studio. We're here in the bustling heart of San Sebastian Film Festival at the Tabacalera Conference Centre and Venue and... You might hear some festival buzz behind us. Uh, Carol, thank you for being with us. Um, You're a top French producer and distributor. And we were speaking this morning about some of the challenges facing producers. Um, Instead of starting immediately with the challenges, I wanted to hear from you what you think is working well
1: in the market. You're right. We should be productive about the market. I think uh, what's working well is uh, the... uh, not the need, but yeah, I guess the need for content. And when I say content, I think it's also a need for films, which I think cinema is actually the new TV somehow. I think uh, there is, uh, you know, when you see companies like Fremantle, for example, uh, investing in films again, I mean, so there is an appetite for, Mm. I would say, films on a certain level of budget and directors And and international uh, values, so that's great. Of course, what's also important is we, how do we, how do we uh, find the new voices? How do we finance them? How do we make them travel? And I think that's the main challenges too. Because, you know, the market, those big companies, they will not invest in a first-time director, of course, because it's too risky. Mm. So, who is taking the risks? I think the mainly the independent producers, so how do these producers still stay healthy and mm-hmm. how do they get financing? So we are very lucky as Europeans to have soft monies available, regional funds, um, tax shelters, uh, broadcasters, uh, distributors. Mm-hmm. So we need those distributors to be healthy as well. And we need, uh, you know, we need the the, the support of all uh, European uh, money possible, your image, media program, and I think those are the only ways to... Uh, compensate the uh, market which is the risk adverse, yeah. in a way, for those voices.
0: Yeah, I thought it was so interesting to hear some of the American experts uh, talking at the, earlier in the conference, and they were saying, oh, we need these risky voices, and they actually were saying, you do it better in Europe, because of this soft money, you can sure. maybe take more creative risks. But even, as you say, yes, we do have these amazing support systems that we need for European filmmaking, but. <sighs> Even with those support systems, is it hard to always get maybe a new talent financed, some project that may be seen as risky in the market? How do you fight to get these maybe newer voices, riskier projects made? Well, I think
1: it depends on the kind of films. Like if you want to produce a a French film for your local market with no international ambition, it's going to be... In a way, easier than if you want to create something a bit more unique that maybe has hybridations with other languages or other countries, other talents. Then it it doesn't fit fit into a box where you can everybody can see what's going to be, you know, the result. So if you're doing you know things a bit uh, out of the box, that's when it's uh, becoming more difficult, and then. That's how you need to collaborate with other producers, other countries. That's actually why we created also the creatives, you know, this mm-hmm. group of uh, independent producers doing both TV and films. And we are really cooperating on on ways to work, on talents to work mm-hmm. with, on ideas. So this is very healthy. And of course, the fact that it is interesting for a group of producers based in Europe mm-hmm. and even outside Europe, uh, is a guarantee that the project may travel more than if not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also I wanted to add with the new voices and the system that we have is we should also make sure that our system uh, allows us to keep those uh, talents because what we don't want to see is uh those new directors, after even one short film, they get, uh you know, signed by yeah. uh, big agencies, and are they really fitting into the U.S. system? Mm. I'm not sure, yeah. so maybe they come back after one or two films, broken, or not broken, but I mean, uh, <laughs> fragilized, yes. or, uh, you know, sometimes, and, and mm. so I think we need to make sure that those uh, Talents stay in Europe and can work internationally. That's why we need yes. to work for new voices, but also for stronger talents mm. in a way to make them uh, achieve their ambitions mm. within Europe on bigger budgets.
0: Um, you just mentioned budgets, so I'm going to ask the money question. Is Do budget levels feel a bit different than they were five years ago, or are you able to maintain... A similar level. And you also work in TV. Are the TV budgets changing a lot?
1: Well, the TV budgets rise and fall. I mean, it depends, of course, on the appetite for, from the streamers, basically, mm-hmm. because they are the ones who can really invest in, in uh, high-end, uh, high-budget uh, episodic uh, series. Um, and, and we all know that uh, this uh, appetite has. has uh, restrained a bit and it's more complicated now mm. to find big uh, uh, streamers invested in bigger series. So we have also also in series to try to work as we did on films like combination of uh, broadcasters, streamers, local, international uh, sales agents, it's becoming more and more um, uh, complicated also to structure the financing of a series if it's international, mm. of, of course if it's local, it's going to stay local and it's one-stop shop, but it's going to be very low in the budget range. Mm. Uh, for films, I think it's very difficult to raise money mm. uh, above. Uh, I would, I mean, for an art film uh, over three million mm. euros, it's complicated. You need to have, I mean, many partners. Many partners. I mean, we heard Emily talking about uh, her film. Uh, I think they were. 12 producers for less than 1.5 million uh, euros budget. So, I mean, you see that we have to be very creative.
0: Yes, this was Emily Morgan talking about her co-production on The Settlers, which is a majority Chilean Argentine film that had nine country co production So, um, and yes, less than 2 million budget. And it's a wonder of financing and a brilliant film as well. Uh, We've been asking a lot of people this week, are you feeling pessimistic, optimistic? realistic i think as a producer you have to have some optimism or you can't get out of bed how are you feeling about this industry
1: well i think we all say that but i think um finding new voices is really what really uh, uh makes us uh, go for it I've, but I've, i think after that you realize when you go into the more realistic uh, um aspect of it okay well it's very interesting that it's going to take me three years or five years to do it. Then you think twice before you really embark on a project like this. But, um, of course, it's really the creativity that is uh, the most... Uh, I mean, I don't think any producer really loves uh, doing these deals with 10 different or 20 different sources of financing. It's part of our job. We do it, but it's not the most exciting thing. So I think if we could do more what, what we do is to be creative and to work on scripts, on IPs with talents, and less on the financing. It would be a, a nice thing. And I wanted to add on the financing in Europe, and um, I don't know who will listen to this, but I think we should really think on uh, about not um, working so much on cost-dependent uh, financing. And more on on creativity, because I think even in in environmental uh, uh, thinking of it, uh, the fact of having to spend money there, money there, to get money from here and there, it's really not working anymore, I think, Mm -hmm.
0: into what we should be doing. Okay. Carol, stay creative. Thank you for fighting the good fight for good European films and series. And thank you for joining us here in San Sebastian at the Tabacalera. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now we're going to talk in a group with Juan Gordon from Morena Films in Spain, John Sloss from Synetic Media in New York, and London-based Elisa Alvarez, finance expert at Jacaranda Group in London. There's been so much we've been trying to talk about at this conference, and I wanted to sort of drill in a little bit with each of you on some of the themes that have been emerging. Um, Firstly, just looking at what are some of the overall challenges from where each of you sits in the market right now? And we'll start with
2: Elisa. The challenges. Um, well, the, the, I think the greatest challenge is the unknown. Um, and that's not exactly different because <laughs> every year there's uh, more unknowns. This is the nature of our um, industry. And thank God for that because that's what keeps us on our toes. Um, but I think now we have a particular, um, particularly interesting set of unknowns uh, between uh, now, what appears to be the end of the strikes, but um, yeah, some um, unknown was in that direction. And certainly the realignment within the large buyers uh, and particularly the platforms. Okay, John. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, well, I, I think along the same lines, um, this is probably the most disrupted moment I've seen in the many, many, many years I've been doing this. And... Um, <clears throat> to me, that means opportunity. So, um, the challenge is to maximize all the opportunity that's out there. Uh, so, and with, with the strikes hopefully coming to an end, uh, and you know, there's so much capital in the marketplace for content to really sort of direct it in the right direction and, uh, and also to just get your fair share of it to get the right content produced.
0: And I'm going to come back to you about what might be the right direction later, but let's go to Juan to hear about some challenges, maybe particularly in the Spanish market.
4: Um, I would say uh, in Spain, but I think overall one of the biggest challenges is to revive the theatrical life of uh, films. Um, and I think that is happening, but we need to maximize that. And at the same time, for me... Uh, There's always the challenge of trying to get art house films and festival films to enjoy the same exposure that mainstream films have at streamers. So try to get those films into the streamers as well so that we can get the the best of both systems.
0: That's interesting. A lot of the speakers at the conference have been talking about you know, belief that theatrical is coming back, it is already back, um, that the theatrical is still the key piece of the puzzle. Are you feeling like that? Or Elisa,
2: are you looking at different models? Let's hear. Um, yes. Well, if we had this conversation a year ago, um, I would probably give a very different answer. But I am actually, um, for once in a long time, quite optimistic about um, theatrical not in the ways we saw theatrical or had been able to exploit films in the past, but just the um, reality that um, we, not just we as in uh, industry players, but um, individuals um, do enjoy the experience and that we've seen particularly since the summer. And what occurs to me is that all we needed were a couple or more um, truly engaging films with which the audiences could connect to break their habit of watching things at home and make it wor- a worthwhile experience. And John, your thoughts on so theatrical and streaming, or yeah, population?
0: I
3: mean. Uh, <coughs> uh, I was very recently involved in a fairly controversial example of this and that was uh, the sale of Richard Linkletter's film Hitman at Toronto. Um, it went over extremely well. It was, is a complete crowd pleaser. Um, and I, as, I, I, as I said at the time, if this were 2019, every single studio and, and distributor of every stripe would have come after it. Um, that didn't happen. Some did, some came after it quite aggressively. And, um, but we ended up doing a deal with Netflix and, uh, Richard Linklater, people felt that it was a, a particularly theatrical film and that it would help bring people back to the, the theaters. And I, I was quoted in an interview as basically saying, um, the real problem here is that the distributors didn't trust themselves. and didn't trust the audience because if they had been even close uh, in terms of what they were offering, if they believed that people would come to the theater, then this film would be being released in a traditional theatrical style. And the fact that they assumed the worst and didn't come aggressively after the film, in my opinion, wasn't a matter of taste because it seemed like everybody loved it. It was really just sort of a gun-shy sense of the theatrical marketplace. And for the theatrical marketplace to really come back in a, you know, Uh, Hardy way, I think the distributors really have to lean into it and lead the way.
0: Could it also be a case that they don't have the deep pockets of Netflix? Or is it just not being really not having taking that risk to spend some of the pockets on a film?
3: Um, Netflix has been spending a lot more than anyone else recently. But if you look at the aggregate budgets of the other players, you know, whether it's Comcast Universal, whether it's Disney with Fox, uh, their annual content budgets are comparable to Netflix. So I don't think it was that.
0: And Juan, how are you seeing the box office in Spain? And um, what's your prognosis for the near future of the theatrical market?
4: Well, uh, right now in Spain, we have... uh, the, 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 the big ten pole films, American, that are working very well. Uh, and then some Spanish comedies that are doing very well as well. We just released a film that became the top Spanish film champions and then the, sec- the sequel. Um, but there are also some interesting art house films that are doing well. Mm-hmm. So I would say there is hope that people want to experience those films uh, in, a, in a quiet room without kids and noise. So um, I think there is certainly, uh, and, and that's my hope, a future for theatrical films. I don't think there will be for all films. I think there is, there is the medium uh, kind of film that is not too big or, or interesting enough that would probably not work in theaters, but I certainly think there is is a life. And it's interesting what John is saying about distributors uh, having to believe in the film because this is something they want us to go theatrically, but they don't even mm, believe or trust their ability to make money on the film. And I think this is absolutely true.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is exactly what went down, and it was a debate, you know, we weren't necessarily asking people to match Netflix dollar for dollar, but we were asking them basically to meet us halfway, and at the end of the day, they don't like to admit it, but ultimately, they didn't trust the marketplace enough to even do that, and uh, anyway, it's, it's a lively debate at the moment, yeah. I would say.
0: Uh, silver lining, maybe even more people will see Hitman.
3: That's what Internet. Netflix tells us. Okay. And it's going to get a pretty full theatrical
0: release. Okay. Oh, great. Okay. So it's not straight to platform. No. Very good. Um, Elisa, you look, I think, more oh, very globally at maybe what's working for, for investors. Um, not just one single person, maybe institutional investors, private equity mostly. Yeah. Um, what, what sort of trends are you seeing that investors are keen on? Or are they moving away from film? We hope not.
2: No, no, I don't think they are. I think, as John alluded to, there's, um, there is still, um, and I think we will continue to exist liquidity, so capital available to invest in um, in IP. Um, I think where there is there are questions as whether to go for. Uh, Theatrical films, which by definition, or or normally at least in in kind of our world, Anglo-Saxon primarily, but European as well, means bigger budgets, higher risk. Um, I think there is a um, certainly a certain level of questioning of the... um, ability of distributors to handle uh, films theatrically at the moment, sort of goes back to your point, but thinking not so much domestically, but um, internationally as well. And um, I think certainly uh, those that I work with have been favouring more straightforward um, structures where you're non-theatrical dependent. That doesn't mean... um, films that are of a low quality, it's just that they are conceived to be, by definition, perhaps to go straight to um, the smaller screen. Okay. Juan, uh, I also wanted to ask you, we mentioned this sort
0: of international outlook that everybody has to have these days. And I'm wondering from where you sit in Spain, you know, how much are you thinking local for local, a, a Spanish film that will work in Spain? How much are you thinking a Spanish film that will work maybe in Spanish speaking world? And how much uh, a Spanish film that can work in the non-Spanish speaking world? How much do you think about all that? And what's that market looking like?
4: Well, um, we've had the, both kinds of experiences. We've done originals for Netflix that have worked very well uh, globally. Uh, but that is because really Netflix is king at making successes within their own their platform. I think they're very, very good at that. Um, but we've also uh, worked with uh, streamers, not so much with distributors, but with streamers at dealing with the international value of our films. We maybe do a theatrical release in Spain with a streamer limited license deal for Latin America or even the U.S. Uh, on a film. And, and combining the two, we're able to, to finance the films so I'm quite positive we're doing also some films with sales companies, but I have to say uh, it's 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 more difficult. It's more difficult. This is certainly true. Uh, difference to what is happening in the U.S., for example, with Linklater. Um, we are having problems uh, not about choosing who to go to, but rather getting any interest from the platforms when you have an auteur. So it's, uh, it's still uh, difficult times, but uh, but I think there is future.
2: One thing
0: that came up a lot in our discussions here at the conference in San Sebastian has been, uh, similar to what Juan's saying, is um, risk. Everybody's saying we want bold voices, we want original new ways of storytelling Um, and yet who is going to take the risk financially on that and I'm just wondering if each of you could reflect on that because I think as audience members we all want to see people taking creative risks and giving us something new but it's right there in the word risk Um, who's going to put their money on the line for that and maybe um, we always pick on Netflix you know maybe Netflix was doing maybe more kinds of film commissioning um, a few years ago, especially in Spain or, or series. And maybe now they're playing it a bit safer with some of the commissions. And again, not just to pick on Netflix. This is the way the whole market is more risk averse. So yeah, how are you feeling about risk and who is
2: paying for risk or who should pay for risk? Elisa, do you have a thought? Well, you know, surprise, surprise, investors are risk adverse. I mean, we all know that. But um, equity investors, and I have been working with them now for quite some time, tend to have a, a, a higher risk tolerance. And that is essentially driven, well, not essentially, they all want to, to make sure that they are um, engaging with some great um, IP. But beyond that, financially speaking, they're motivated to take more risk because that would lead potentially to greater returns. So... the. Do we take risks? Yes, we do take risks. But would we finance to pick on something we talked about, the uh, cocaine bear? I, <laughs> hardly, I think. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. But how do we mitigate risk is more important, um, given that it's part of our remit to take risk. We, we mitigate risk by working with partners who have a track record of um, understanding what the market wants. As we keep on changing because obviously what public wants keeps changing and that to me has been a key aspect of the deals that we do is really establishing partnerships with producers and distributors and studios with whom we can align align interests and um, who are all working towards something better. I know this is a bit of an empty because I'm not giving you exact examples but um, in reality, it does come down to who you're partnering with. Yeah, John, I think you like creatively
0: risky things. Well, who's coming with you on the journey?
3: I, you know, as, as I'm fond of saying to anyone who will listen, um, the, the most reliable genre of all is the new. And um, that brings with it inherent risk. Um, everything Elise is saying is correct in terms of mitigation of risk. But ultimately... You have to trust your judgment in who is a storyteller worth taking a risk on. And, you know, when uh, Christine Vachon and Pam Koffer did a brilliant panel yesterday, and their track record about, you know, having correct judgment about new voices is extraordinary. And I've spent my career trying to align myself with people like that. So, um I think that's really what it comes down to.
0: How do you convince, if you've found the most brilliant new talent, how do you convince the right people? As Elisa said, you do need some alignment. It's not just one person taking a risk. How do you convince the right partners to come with you?
3: I mean, ultimately, what I've always said about film investment is that if you're if you're getting into film for strictly economic reasons, you're crazy. It is not historically the best investment, but it doesn't have to be a foolhardy investment. And if if you approach it with the right risk mitigation and, and there are all sorts of tools for that and trust, either follow your passion or trust your judgment in terms of who has something to say that people want to hear, then, you know, unless you're wildly unlucky over time and if you commit enough, you know, resources to it, you're going to be okay.
0: Juan, how about the Spanish market? Are they taking risks with financing new voices or interesting new ways of storytelling? Yeah, are, are the Spanish risky right now?
4: Well, it's interesting because um, a lot of the public money available through tax incentives or, or uh, subsidies um, really uh, is structured in a way that will um, benefit first-time directors, will benefit women directors, so suddenly because of that, we're seeing a crop of a very interesting uh, generation of, of young directors, especially women directors. Uh, we did a film called Piggy that went uh, extremely well, uh, both in Spain and internationally. So I think there is, there is a good moment. Uh, festivals are following suit with, with that tendency to, to to help and to support new talent, and we're seeing that people get excited about being involved in that film. That is, that is the the cream of the of the moment, you know. So I would say it is a good moment. We just need once again to get the the American streamers behind it. We have Movie Star who is supporting new talent. Um, But the overall uh, remit for Amazon, Netflix, um, Apple is, you know, mainstream comedy, thriller, horror. And I think we need to open a space to also see some of that new talent in those in those platforms.
0: John, just in the US, how are you seeing I mean, you You're working with Todd Haynes and Linklater, um, some names we know and love. But Mm -hmm. how easy is it for new talent to get the right support, do you feel right now? I know we're coming in a strange moment when the writer strike is... Today's... The day we're recording this is the first day writers have been back to work. So, yeah, what does it feel like in the U.S. at the moment? Um,
3: You know, it's an awkward time in the U.S. because... uh, I mean, Juan, you're exactly right, and... If the streamers actually allocated part of their bandwidth for new voices, that would be brilliant and might even benefit them in the long run. But in my experience, that's not what they're doing. Um, and at a time when distributors, as I said, are gun shy about theatrical, I mean, theatrical is engineered to support new voices more than I would argue than than um, streaming, because you know there's a lots of free marketing, you know, reviews and and and. Films can sit in the theater or can go through the different media and expand word of mouth when there's a new voice. And you don't, you know, if, if that if you don't hit the algorithm on a, on a, on a platform, you, you can disappear without a trace. So um, I think people need to come back to the theaters. I, 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 you know, I sound like a broken record. and I think the distributors need to sort of put their neck out there and trust themselves and and really push people back into the theaters and, and, you know, lean into new voices and theatrical films and um, hopefully that will help the market.
2: I think another interesting angle when we look at new talent is um, um, lower budget films and genre films in particular um, seem to work quite well in that direction and One of the slate deals that I put together is um, specifically uh, focused on genre films. This is public information. It's a deal that we closed in 2019 um, to provide a very substantial amount of capital to XYZ uh, Films, which at the time were uh, uh, renowned but purely sales agent and have now transformed the business to become a um, a small studio. And in doing that, we co-financed or fully financed Um, a number of first time directors Um, and obviously to the extent that the projects are good enough, of course, it has to stand on its legs, but um, finances are happy to do that because the money at risk is much less Mm -hmm. than if you were doing, you know, one of the prestige films that we do with A24, for instance.
0: Yeah, I think that word slate is important to remember (laughs) sometimes is, you know, even at this conference last year, we had Spanish producers pitching a single project And this year, we realized, no, people, if they're meeting international investors and partners, let's talk about the company and the slate. And it's not just a one-off and not reinventing the wheel every time, we hope. Um, At this conference, one recurring question we've been trying to ask is, are you pessimistic? Are you optimistic? Are you realistic? Probably most people are a little combination of some of those. I think overall at the conference, I've been happy to hear people say optimistic. Or if you're not optimistic anymore, you can't do jobs anymore because it's a hard business. You can't get out of bed in the morning and fight for films if you're not feeling a little bit optimistic. But maybe you could each, um, to close, just tell me a little something that you see either in the market, a filmmaker, something you've heard this week that makes you feel some optimism. (laughs)
4: <laughs> um, <laughs> it seems I'm the only one wanting to respond <laughs> yeah. um, I, I would like to think that the deals the streamers are offering after the strike and I don't know the details of what has been negotiated but would be open to a bit more of sharing when it comes to, to, to the back-end, a bit more of a, of, a, of a increased fee, something that will make the discussion not so much about having given up on the IP or not, because maybe an original with a streamer could be a good deal for the producer if they were flexible to, to improve the deal a bit. So I am optimistic that through this stride, uh, there will be an opening to some kind of deal making that would take into consideration the fact that producers need to live on uh, for, for, for longer periods of time. And therefore a bit of, uh, of sharing would be ideal. I hope, I don't know if, if that would be the case.
2: I'm happy to take it. Um... And I love the way you said, uh, Juan. I was cheering here in the back uh, because I agree with that. But to, in answer to your question, I am opportunistic. Okay. <laughs> Smart Heidi. So I think there's always going to be reasons to um, to be afraid of, and, and change is always, you know, comes with threats. But at the same time, um, it opens up opportunities and I think the the challenge is to be creative enough to be awakened enough to be open enough to actually see them and be able to structure what we can do around them so yeah so I'm super excited about the um, you know the deals that writers well um, and hopefully very soon actors will do I think it's going to be good for eventually for producers and I'm hoping that we'll open doors for investors to get a little bit of share of that too. Although I appreciate it's going to be very hard to get that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say further to to what Elisa and Juan are saying, um, I've spent 30 years trying to sort of protect uh, revenue streams from exploitation. And then Netflix sort of came along and just blew that out of the water and basically said, uh, you know, we we don't believe in transparency. We don't believe in data transparency, and um, and to me that set the industry back about thirty years. Um, and when Avod started to come in, you know, and when when Netflix started an advertising tier, um, you started seeing a crack in in the availability of data because you need it for advertising. And the idea of the strike settlement with with uh, possible residuals and a further opening of the i guess the kimono as they say uh to uh, a <laughs> shopworn phrase um to uh to allow greater transparency could hopefully start to return us to a model that isn't just overspending to buy ip use it for 18 months and then basically discard it or put it into the ether uh, and make something that can stay in the marketplace and enable IP creators and the people around them to share in the revenue streams down the road. And the other thing is, uh, just to answer the macro of your question, I mean, I'm optimistic by nature. Uh, I'm a salesman. I come from a family of salesmen. I like to refer to myself as a glass three-quarters full person. Um, But I'm trained as a lawyer also and (laughs) trained to sort of, you know, trust but verify. And, um, but I think There's reason to be optimistic in general.
0: I think there we have it. The experts have some optimism, some realism, some opportunism. And um, it's been brilliant talking to you all. Thank you so much for being here. And um, yes, we'll see by the time the EFM rolls around, maybe we'll check in with all of you again and see where the optimism lies there. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much to our guests in this episode, Carol, Juan, John, and Elisa. I've learned a lot from them. I hope you've been inspired by their optimism. Thanks again for listening to the EFM podcast, Industry Insights. And thanks to our partners, the Gote Institute and Creative Europe Media, and to our friends in San Sebastian for collaborating on this episode.